My name is Edie Maydove. I am 53. Welcome back to 25 for 25. This is a show about being, you guessed it, 25. My name is Panina Beatty, and in this show, I interview 25 amazing people about what their lives were like at age 25. That's right. I'm also 25. Well, the election is wrapped up, and I think all in all, the results were positive, despite certain people's complaints. And to be honest, since the results have been called for Biden, I feel really free of my anxiety, but kind of overwhelmed with an intense depression. Part of it is the crash that happens after extreme pressure or mania, and the other part is just the paralyzing notion that millions more people will get sick and possibly die before Inauguration Day. It took me about a week to get out of this slump and take a shower. Now that I'm back in it, I'm trying to stay hopeful for a vaccine, and I'm protecting myself and others by not going to Thanksgiving dinner in person. Don't go. Zoom's giving is all the rage anyway. I chose to put out the interview with this week's guest because there was something very calming about speaking to Edie Madoff. She's a writer and teacher at the University of Massachusetts Amherst in the MFA Creative Writing Program. She's published several novels, including one of my favorites, Lola California. Edie's presence encourages you to think of your words before you share them, something I often have to remind myself of. Since I've been in my 20s, I've often felt lost about what I want to pursue. For example, I'm producing this podcast, but I also love to perform stand-up comedy, and I'm also applying to grad school, and I also just took a teaching job. Edie told me that at different points in life, there will be a feeling that the outside world is winking at you, telling you that you're on the right path. Edie started with a reading of a letter that she wrote to a young friend a few years ago. This was a really great interview because I had a partner in crime. Edie's older daughter, Eliana, happened to be in the house, so I asked her to join us. She had some seriously great questions that I had never thought to ask, and their mother-daughter chemistry is electric. Just to soothe everybody's anxiety, this was recorded in the fall before we even knew what coronavirus was. Here's Edie Maida on 25. Dear young friend, first, can I say I love you? and then that you are beautiful. These statements seem out of bounds only if you stop reading right here. Such extreme affection will be borne out, I hope, by what follows. Who are you right now? You are young, still in your 20s. You struggle to make ends meet, though everyone in your family has it made. You have nothing, or in everything which really feels like nothing. And because of the technologies of instant gratification in our age, walls of images and messages surround you. Tweets and likes and hearts and stars sparkle around, all icons hijacked from the world of grade school doodling. With such mental wallpaper, how can you not believe that if you are not successful, and we will return to that tricky word soon, right now, then you will never mount onto the right track. Who are you right now? You say you are possibly battling some despair about the idea of success. Change that to you are battling despair. 
actually holding despair down to the mat, knowing in a second it could spring up and charge at you again. Let it stay there, prone for a second, even as I want to defer my own longing to crush immediately the phrase we voice and swallow so readily. That bitter pill, the idea of success. No matter what we do, we will inevitably keep returning to it, or rather, it returns in our bloodstream, giving us the jitters. But let us pause here with a patience uncharacteristic of our age and just take a moment to breathe and say, exclamation point. <laughs> and then to just to let some other spirit out. Oh my God. And emoticon of winking semicolon parentheses. Your major problem right now is time, another idea to which we will return. Consider first the era in which you were born. So much faces you so constantly. Everything you see has a shelf life. But will you walk with me through a little microhistory? Back in the dawn of a different moment, people called the outcome of one's life the fruit of inborn destiny, karmic intention, past deeds, or else a visitation of divine grace with a triumphant reward or tragic penalty. Only a few early ironists, including the Greeks and Shakespeare, cartoonishly twisted signposts toward triumphant penalty or tragic reward. Over a whole lifetime, you were supposed to work your birthright out and in this way learn some greater mortal lesson or how to reap the rightful punishment or reward of your original state. Later, success solidified as an umbilicus, a blood root of privilege, primogenitor, potentially useful marriages extending down over generations. The lucky stood on the hard work or easy privilege of those before them and reached sideways, while the unlucky fell off the side of a flat earth, never to be seen or heard from again. Much later, success appeared as a mountain with slow and careful steps you rounded bends, forever seeing above you the peak of your desire. In that later time, your obedience and careful opportunism would be rewarded until the Horatio Alger story, born of crowded cities set down among the plains, came to slaughter it. The Alger story birthed from the secret opportunism the mountain hikers knew about. If we were to chart this in the style of an antique map, Horatio Alger would be working hard at the map center in his big boots, alive through much of the 20th century, off into the 21st. In the distance, you could sight a few persistent mountain hikers, slow, careful climbers. Far off the coast, you would spot lively scions of privilege yachting around landmasses within fine seas of self-reference. The second our era started, this map became antique. We have to admit that the internet is our hungry ghost fairy godmother. With fluted tones, this godmother came promising vast democracy. How much power she held in her silver wand. She offered the possibility of instantly anointing the person born of castle, trailer, or slum. Whoever knew best how to approach her. Great blandishments. Forget arriving in Manhattan with a cardboard suitcase with great dreams. The fairy godmother could pretend interest in the innards of your suitcase. What a shimmery chimerical being she was. That godmother with her wand ready to wield fame or ignominy 
wearing her costume over a hungry ghost. The Fairy Godmother Era? WTF. The Fairy Godmother Era? Why not? Take this idea. The truest story of creation in all its permutations is I am. And can we admit that you, as you approach the internet, do not say I am, but rather, do I exist? Not exactly the burst of exaltation that impelled Whitman to sing of cities or Dickinson to whisper to all time, do I exist? Do you mean me? Do I exist? You ask now reading this. Yes, you do. Heart icon. Stare into the hollow eyes of the hungry ghost and ask some questions. Why does this era in which you leave behind girlhood and approach full-blown womanhood act like a fake best friend? How does that hungry ghost so fiendishly and so often know your preferences, your musical genome, your consumer's profile, your friends and frenemies? Why does everyone get to be an authority with the prize going to the loudest and most subjective? What happened to the quiet ripening of bruised fruit in a forgotten orchard? the aging of wine in dented oak barrels. If you were to distill all messages, covert and overt, coming your way, you are forever meant to exist outside of time, starting right now. Without any bend toward the friction of time, you are supposed to be shiny, new, ripped from a fashion magazine. Even in your most intimate moments, you should use moves from prefabricated shots of moments simulating passion. You are meant to give up the natural questioning of life for the calcified opinion. Imagine a board game. The one who shouts most ringingly from the rooftops wins. And yes, there are vulnerable groundbreakers around, books and shows and messages which show that you are not alone in your vulnerability. But in the way they turn their skin inside out, they can also make you shiver. What is sacred? Do you have to get naked? Does your diary go live? Is that what you have to do to be successful? Make of your inside-out skin a bridge for others to tramp upon? Use the desire of those younger or older to hoist yourself up? You try to surf over such questions and other questions besides. But when should you have kids? Should you use a pill? Should you marry? Should you leave him or her? Were you just left or not? Should you go online and hook up with many people? Should you sow your wild oats or stay safe and alone, feeling so lonely you would prostitute yourself, do nothing, do everything, dance a hipster striptease, go to the gym, take an all-night bus to see people in another town, people you used to live with, blow money you don't have? But what gives meaning and pleasure? What can you do forever without a built-in epithet? Will you turn into your parents? What activity could you do daily that will work within the capitalist framework? Should you hike solo for a year or save up money working retail? Or as a paralegal, or should you go south and take ayahuasca? Do you hate to network? Are you too introverted? Do you talk to the wrong people? Why do the right people never call? What talent do you really have? Don't other people get lucky breaks? Do you have enough energy? Will you never get a lucky break again? Will you never be able to do X again? Or are you creating a life in which X occurs daily? Consider that a natural chaos attends the 20s. Chaos. Insert internet glean definition. We live in an era in which your godmother acts as if her wand is the only wand, and her wand has deluded you into believing that if you are not successful now, at your biological peak, nothing will ever quite work out. Instead, befriend time as your ally. Recognize this time as a special one, 
It's your first step in that friendship with time. Feel as if you have enough of it. All the many strands you may be exploring now, or just the one, will be redeemed later, I promise. A personal story. For a while in my 20s, it might be fair to say I held no 40-week job longer than two months. Did I doubt myself leaving jobs so readily? Yes. Did the wisdom gleaned about the world from those jobs help me in later years? Of course. Was I later able to help others, whether with advice, connections, or some intangible because of those jobs? Often. From my experience, I think the 20s are your time for apprenticeship, for learning as much about the world and its different environments as you can. Know that all the seeds you sow in your 20s you will reap. These are your apprenticeship years. Don't worry if the seeds do not make sense immediately. Later life comes along soon enough to say to you, stay rooted, and then the task becomes to still view the world with the bursting energy and curiosity you have so much of now, while having more of the container around you that we can call wisdom. So much about your 20s has to do with acting, as if you might already have the container. So much of who you will later be is apparent now to the right set of eyes. So many older men and women can testify to this, looking at you now. It is just that the future self may be hidden by some scrims. Self-doubt, questioning, a mind with a penchant toward comparison. I would like now to distill some of the rest of what I would say into a list endemic of our age, with the hope that in its pocket-sized friendliness it might be helpful to you. Do not lose yourself in one primary relationship, or at least give that primary relationship some time. It is not bad to sow some wild oats because if you think you may even possibly want to have children, good to think a little ahead with some intention about what age you might want to begin. Travel if you love it. Now is the time. Later is too, but now we'll just inform you in some interesting way. Don't network just for the sake of networking, which feels ultimately like a hollow enterprise and will leave you feeling inauthentic. Enjoy the doorman and then also the job interviewer. Find some kind of hard connection with both. It is a calcification in any a priori idea about a situation which will make you prematurely old. Train your mind away from obsessive loops. Start your day not by texting or emailing, but with something that helps you find calm. It could be a dream book. It could be two minutes of meditation. It could be going outside barefoot. This act might involve looking around you and noticing the bounty and health of your life. It doesn't matter. You need some grounding right now. Life is exciting. The sap runs high. You need a container. The very psyche then might be putting you through the ringer has an urgent message. See if you can step back a moment and pause to receive it. Is there a way you can see yourself as if you were a compassionate mother on your deathbed, holding yourself with love, embracing this young, questioning self, whether she is right now most commonly found head under the covers or grinning and bearing it, try to hear and understand one simple message about her right now. Back to that comparative mind. Consider envy a useful signpost about something you really would like to try, a mask over a seed of your potential. The romantic regrets will probably not be endless, so don't necessarily listen to the fear of them all the time. Back to that idea of success. Whose is it? Who told you to make that idea? Who are the failures and successes in your family line and set of acquaintances? Jung says the single greatest influence on the child are the unfulfilled wishes of the parent. 
What are your parents or grandparents' unfulfilled desires? Don't be shy about asking for reference letters. Everyone has been in your position once. People like to be helpful. They see your request as much less shameful or problematic than you might feel in forwarding it on. You will later love this charmed 20-something, this despairing 20-something, this beautiful girl with all her talent, confidence, insecurity, intelligence. That girl who might be mistaking her talent for her calling or vice versa. But that girl is already who she will be for the rest of her life, even if her way of feeling and expressing it belong uniquely to this moment. Why not listen to her now? Love her now. Give her the gift of balance. Because chaos, right now, is your domain. Embrace it. Oh my God. Like. All of it. Why not? Now. Right now. The world is already yours. Love. Your admirer. What inspired you to write that letter to your student? She and some friends of hers had started an online literary magazine, which I don't think exists anywhere, called The Whale Sings, and they asked me to write something. And it was to her, but it was also to so many of the really talented 20-somethings that I have the good luck to know. It happens to be a generation that I feel really connected to because there's a kind of idealism that shucks the jadedness of the generation which I grew up with. Um, So I kept seeing a kind of snub-nosed paper airplane disappointment in these girls or young women who were encountering the internet and so their idealism was not mm. quite finding its landing ground. Mm. Do you think she received it? Would you have received it if you had written No. <laughs> <laughs> Is it because of that idealism, you think? I realized that when I was 14, there's a line Marguerite Dura has it, when you're... 18, you have the face you will have for life. When I was 14, I thought I knew everything about the world and people were not really going to tell me much different and everything was going to fit into those categories. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you. Where and when were you when you were 25? So I was starting my last semester in graduate school in Oakland, California. And I had hoped to enter this program with the goal of being paid to travel the world after. So I had been accepted for this Fulbright that came immediately after. Um, I was living with somebody 27 years older than I am. I was in a two-year relationship with him. And... I had not wanted to make him move across the country for an MFA program, so I got to be in my hometown, and I was just getting those first surges of possibility that my work would find its purchase in the world. You know, I think I had published a tiny story in one, in the American Voice, I had published poetry, just in little places, and I had the hope that it would all work out at that point. (laughs) How did you feel about turning 25? 
I think I felt the world was my oyster. Mm. I think I felt kind of optimistic. I felt that I had had a lot of long periods of despair, and I felt suddenly things were starting to make, it was like an eye exam, things were starting to come into focus Mm -hmm. creatively, and there were enough, it's sort of like anyone in any creative field starts to feel like a donkey in the desert, where like, okay, maybe there's one little carrot, go to that carrot, okay, that's enough to go another like 500 miles, you know, and so there were, every now and then there was enough of a carrot to get me to the next Mm -hmm. posting. Like deadlines for competitions, or no? Every now and then there would be a feeling that the outside world, the eye of the outside world's approval, would kind of wink at me to say, "Okay, you're basically on the right path." Mm. So one has to be also alert to those moments where it's like, "Okay, actually, you're you know, even a small thing, even somebody saying to you, yes, I think you should be doing podcasts.'" <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Everyone needs to hear that sometimes. That you should be doing podcasts. <laughs> what gave you the most anxiety? This will sound very despairing. <laughs> I did not know if I was essentially lovable, and if it, I essentially had taken on for myself a kind of model of the male artist. I didn't quite have in my mind a sense of female artist slash adventurers. And people were not talking so much about this at that time. And so I sort of felt that I was doomed to not truly have fulfillment in an intimate relationship because my art would always be calling me. Whereas if I were a male artist, that would not have been a question. Mm. And so I had this kind of vision of myself in intimacy, like, there's a Paul Clay etching I've often referred to called Hero with a Broken Wing. And it's sort of how I felt like, okay, you know, I there are people who are near me or around me or who would, you know, be with me and I would be with them, but there's ultimately some inner sanctum I can't let people into because I have this drive about doing something that could change at least my sense of what literature can do. You know, one part of me, the savior complex thought, if I write something that could matter to someone the way literature saved my life at certain points, that would be a great feat. So I wanted to create work that I thought would stand a certain test, and I still feel my best work is ahead of me. Mm. To that end, how has your creative voice changed? I seem to have been called a maximalist and it's odd because I really love the well-crafted urn and think quite a lot about form and shape but I also love propulsive musical sentences Mm. and so and I began sort of in poetry I studied with Robert Hess around the time when I was 25 because I didn't like the way the workshops were being conducted at my MFA Um, but you know one of the things that I saw was that the simple. Um, I think sometimes it's a strange tension for me of how, how one listens to one's subjectivity. I don't think there's one set subjectivity one has one's whole life, but I think 
my essential question through every work I've done has been something about whether two people can ever understand each other fully. Mm. You know, the the desire, the hunger for communication and understanding and the possibility or impossibility of it. Mm. My name is Eliana Stromative and I'm 17 years old. Nice. So, do you have any questions for your mother? <laughs> People can't see it, but the look on your face right now is like, here we go. Um, at 25, what was your most squashed hope? I remember uh, when I was younger in Berkeley, some friend of my parents who was a psychic said, you see yourself striding across the desert in seven league boots. And I think then I felt that and I'm like, okay, now it's all going to work out. But th- what squashed hope did I have? Um, I think I had had squashed hopes before, and now I was just in a state of binary exaltation. Did any people, group of people, disgust you as a mere reflection of yourself? I didn't like white appropriators. Was that what you were at that age? Not fully, no. But I was deeply aware of that chasm. What chasm? That I could trip into and fall if I was not mindful. What people treated you with the most um, unawareness? Or did everyone, did anyone treat you as if they saw you as an individual? No. (laughs) did you treat yourself as an individual yes did you talk to yourself as if you were one yes did you respect yourself as no one else did yes did you respect anyone else yes Dead people. (laughs) (laughs) Like who? Henry James. Okay, Jam Kutsia. I really loved him, the South African writer, but then I came, I saw him come to read at Berkeley, and I didn't. There's this quote William Gaddis has that the writer is always a shambles following his work around, and I was disappointed. Um, I loved my poetry mentor. We talked about him, Robert Hess. I thought he was a very sane exemplar of the life of hiking with his family and then teaching poetry and finding a life of the mind. Did you feel disappointed because people around you failed to present themselves as individuals? Yes. Did you feel alone? Yes. Did you feel like anyone was supporting you? Yes. Who? My my mate at the time. He was like a mother and father and everything I'd never known. Did he live up to your expectations? Did you regard him with respect or partial? (laughs) I respected so much about him. Did you ever mock him in your own head for fun? 
None for fun. <laughs> In your leisure time? Once he read my diary and he said, it was so amazing because I saw that you had this inner confidence that you don't show out outwardly. And I thought that's what the writer is always observing and having this inner core of confidence in the observation. Beneath the confidence, was there any feeling of emptiness? Completely. What did that look like? I had a despair that if I didn't create or produce, I was nothing. When did, what, how much time did it take you to conquer that and have you fully conquered that yet? I still feel my best work is ahead of me, but somebody said to me today that even if I did nothing else and I only went to Trader Joe's and taught classes and raised children and you went to community college, everything would be just fine. That, I, that I've already, that life has already been so full. Mm-hmm. Do you agree and have you begun to go inward with this assessment or do you just let it touch the outer core of your being? It was said to me a few hours ago. Nonetheless, it has started to penetrate my core. Are you letting it, or is it doing so unwillingly? I am both. <laughs> I am both actively inviting it, and it is working its magic. reason you found that so funny <laughs> um for three different reasons okay um one of it was is potential connotations the other one is because it sounds like it's a sequence from pride and prejudice where they're speaking of something that has to do with it what are you talking about i don't know they're speaking of some sort of it mm-hmm. they're always we not speak of it to it as opposed to an actual substance right um, and then, yeah. Is there a reason you found that funny? No. <laughs> I mean, you know, she's a funny lady, but. <laughs> what part of body does your emptiness most often inhabit? My, and My belly. Has it changed from 25? Usually I have a feeling of complete constriction at my throat of pain and suffering of everything I'm not expressing and then a hole in my belly. But now, I feel mostly just in my throat, in my heart. So pre, it has not moved from it the age of moved. 25? It has moved. Now, now I feel things more in my heart directly. What do you think caused that? Do you think it was like admitting things to go to your heart? Yes. I think I was a very defended person, even though outwardly I had a kind of California sunny cheer. Do you think you were... Did you compare yourselves to other yourself to other people and feel comforted, or did you think you were? Did you feel so isolated from the experience of others? There's a, there's a quote that I really love. In in one pocket, a person should have a piece of paper that says the world was made for but me alone, and the other one I am but that dust and ashes. And I think I was going between that grandiosity and emptiness quite often at 25. I think that was a real hallmark of that moment. So, but I had some kind of inner elitism, like 
you were bringing up Nietzsche the other day. It was kind of like a Nietzschean thing of like, I will stride over everything. I have some superpower. All my dreams were me saving tissues of civilization. I could pick them up and we could all fly over the world together and I would save them. I had this real savior complex. Where did the fear of intimacy, where did the pain of and fear of intimacy center itself in your body? Like, where, where did you feel it the strongest? I think I didn't really let the caring of others enter. So you, so you were basically like, it, like a shield. Yes. Like partitioned. When you were in your teenage years, you had pretty, very much close relationships with girls. Did you let them, or did you just view them as the solve on the outside of the shield? No, I let them in. So what happened between that age and moving on that, like, prevented you? I went to college on the East Coast. (laughs) (laughs) And people in New England. And people were cold and distant. And there was a link, a distancing from nature. And it was a greater culture shock than going from California to Sri Lanka. And I learned the ethos of achievement and success as a way of patching over inner nihil- not, not inner emptiness. Whereas in California, one could sit on the grass and sort of feel the great abundance of nature and the universe. When was the first time you began to let the outer world or its expressions of intimacy in, or to actively be aware that you were letting it in? This second. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Recently. Okay. What phrase still haunts you that you found maybe when you were 25 before you were writing poetry? either that you wrote or that you wrote of someone else. That Rilke poem that I could recite right now, but I don't have to. You should. Do you want it? Yeah. Do you want it in German or bad German or English? I'll do it in English. I think probably English. Yeah, 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 right. My German listeners are upset with me now, but... (laughs) This inclination when we were young to be so much alone was mild. Others spent their time in strife. Each one had a faraway place a picture, an animal. Am I in myself not in greatness? Will what is mine no longer soothe and trust me as when I was a child? Suddenly I am as if thrown out and into something vast and ill-fitting. This isolation transforms me when on the hills of my breast my feeling cries for end or flight. Why do you love that poem? That was probably the plaint of myself at that exact age. I mean, I memorized it as I would walk back and forth to this German class, and I, mm. I think that kind of deeply romantic, you know how when you're younger you hear kind of a soundtrack of the self, and you're this big you're in a person, movie. you're in a movie, and I think I even, even though I mo- had that more before 21, but I really still had it 25, and I think it was like, yes, I'm kind of going to nurture that inner lost child self and I'm going to bring it into being and that song that poem was somehow a very heavy German romantic evocation of it yeah I have some questions for you Eliana go for it please do it what do you think you'll be like when you're 25 
all of six ear piercings. Nice. Yeah. That's achievable. Edie, how do you feel about her having six ear piercings? I support her yeah. in her deepest, most heartfelt quest. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else? <laughs> yeah, come on. You have other ideas. What, what would, yeah, what would you like to be like when you're 25? I would like to have nice muscles. <laughs> Physical or metaphorical? Literal muscles. <laughs> so and I'd like you're to be the least superficial person I know, and you're like, I want six piercings and nice muscles. And I would like to be able to play some instruments well. So people don't cringe, even inside when they hear it. And I hope I can walk with grace. Mm. Nice. Or really clumsily, but like some sort of grace. Mm -hmm. You can be clumsy with grace. That's true. Yeah. I've seen many. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's all. Okay, so 25-year-old Edie Medav comes in sits down with all of us, joins 53-year-old Edie. What does she think? I actually feel like crying for the poor 25-year-old. <laughs> the 25-year-old would think this is pretty amazing. Yeah, she would look at Eliana and you in the, this messy room that we're sitting in and think it was kind of wild. and. Interesting, you know, often I had the experience of writing in a book fictionally what I ended up living. Mm. And um, in my first book, I, I had said I was going to end up in a cave, or there was something about a cave in Rhinebeck, in the fr and I didn't even know where that was, and then years later we ended up living there. And, you know, there were there was just a way the, the life often caught up with the writing. Mm. So I think the 25-year-old would feel this was a kind of fantasy I'd had mm. somehow. Actually... It comes from a book I read on my mother's shelf when I was young, uh, Fear of Flying by Erica Jong. I would think that I was sort of, you read that too. My um, mom loves that book. Right, people love that book. <laughs> but I read it when I was too young, and I think I would had ended up being this older woman writer in that way. What kind of music were you listening to? I had been a DJ in LA and I thought it was really cool my music taste. Wow. <laughs> what kind of music? Like what what artists, particular Seal. songs? Seal was later. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, you know, I just thought I, I don't know, I, I I had this weird radio show that got piped out to the cornfields of like Idaho. <laughs> with American Radio Network, and I would go to this L.A. studio and record it, and I would just bring these random cassettes I had, and um, it would be like Ecstasy, XTC or The Pogues or, um, you know, The Cure. I think that radio show ended when I brought my brother and had him be a beat poet that I was interviewing as a joke, and then just, it was like, okay, that was the consummation, and it ended. Um... I hate to say, but Cheryl Crow was in my head sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> Any books or movies as well? You said that you were seeing a lot of African films. No, you know what I loved? I loved the movie 
it's so depressing. I love the movie Vagabond by Agnes Varda. I loved the movie The Dream Life of the Angel, the French movie. I loved Pell the Conqueror. Um, these are all foreign movies. Um, and a book, I mean, I, I liked Gina Berrio, this bitter vision. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I liked I liked J.M. Kutsia a lot. I liked Jeanette Winterson so much. I liked Toni Morrison's Beloved. Of course. Yeah. Final words for many of us. Was there any parent figure you were speaking to in your writing? My and first novel is all about my dad. Is it like you're talking to him? Like, are you looking for him in some way, or are you rejecting him? I think I was becoming him and exploring his genial blind narcissism. Are there any books to your mother? No. Are you are there any books to some universal mother that you're trying to get closer to? Is that like Lola California? Yes. What qualities do you look for in the universal? Caring and understanding and support, unconditional support, and physical presence. Edie Eliana, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Panina. Yeah.